1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Howard Gardner about the new book, A Synthesizing Mind, a memoir from the creator of multiple intelligences theory. An authority on the human mind reflects on his intellectual development, his groundbreaking work, and different types of intelligence, including his own. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So, how are you? How is your week going?
2: Well... That's a difficult question during uh, the summer of 2022, because I'm lucky I'm retired and haven't gotten sick and live a comfortable life with my wife and children and grandchildren. But when I know what's going on in this country, the United States, and what's going on in the rest of the world, uh, one would have to be uh, deliberately blind and deaf not to be very concerned.
0: Mm, yes, for sure. All right. So can you tell us what do you do?
2: Well, I'm uh, a by training I'm a research psychologist. Uh, I conducted research for over half a century. I taught at the Harvard Graduate School of Education for 40 years. I recently retired from being a teacher, but I still run a very active research laboratory i have 12 colleagues working with me and i continue to read and write and go to movies and see family and friends under COVID conditions so i know how fortunate i am uh, both to have chosen a career which i could continue even after i officially retire of research and writing and to live in a country which so far has avoided uh Warfare on our on our soil, but um, I spoke recently to colleagues in Ukraine, and I said I'm from the disunited states, and I'm impressed by how the war by Russia against Ukraine has united much of the democratic world. So I'm always um, living my own life and my own work, but also thinking about the, what's happening politically and socially and culturally around the world. And even the ability to to think about this is a luxury. Uh, First of all, I have contact with newspapers all over the world. I can read them, nobody censors them yet. I have colleagues all over the world. Um, But in that sense, uh, retired academics in the United States have a a very privileged condition and we, we need to recognize that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So we're going to jump right into your book, because it is an extraordinary memoir of your life, and it's called A Synthesizing Mind, a memoir from the creator of multiple intelligences theory. So what inspired you to write it?
2: I've always been interested in biography, and when I was a young person, I read, I consumed many biographies. So... It wasn't strange of me to think about writing a personal account, a memoir. Um, But I'm most interested in, and I thought the world would be most interested in, the development of my ideas. So even though there is some autobiographical information, for example, I'm the same age as President Biden, and we both come from a city in Pennsylvania called Scranton. That's kind of amusing. Uh, And I talk a bit about my. Parents and grandparents and my family and my colleagues, it's mostly the development of my ideas. And clearly, if I'm known at all in the world, it's because 40 years ago, I developed this idea of multiple intelligences and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, and publishers were interested in my talking about the development of multiple intelligences ideas, and multiple intelligences theory and i was prepared to do that but then two things happened one i didn't just want to repeat myself because i had told that story at least in talks for many years um but also i realized and this is something i'd never confronted before that multiple intelligences theory and we can talk about what mi theory is doesn't really explain my own mind very well um i'm a fairly standard academic scholar. And like most people who are academics and scholars, I'm pretty good with language, and I'm pretty good with logic. And every other intelligence is kind of an option. Uh, I happen to be musical, but to do what I do, you don't have to be musical. Um, I'm not at all spatial. But again, to do what I'm doing, doesn't require a lot of spatial intelligence. So the more I thought about my own mind, the more I thought that the best way to describe my own intelligence is, so to speak, is that I have a synthesizing mind, and I'm sure we'll talk more about what that means. But in brief, synthesizers like me um, have a lot of information in our mind, a lot of junk there, a lot of stuff. You know, we read a lot, we have a lot of experiences, we store it. You know, we have a well-stocked cabinet or grocery store. Um, but then we get interested in a question. Um, And since I'm a scholar, I get interested in a research question like what is intelligence, what's creativity, what is leadership, and then the synthesizer reviews all the stuff that's already in the cabinet, and then goes out and finds out more information, which the scholar thinks is relevant, and then tries to put it together in a way that makes sense to you, because we wouldn't do it unless you were trying to understand intelligence or creativity or leadership. But it's not enough that it just makes sense to you. If it does, if that's all you're doing, you could just leave it in your mind and forget about it. But as a scholar, I'm a writer, I'm a communicator. And so I want to explain to other people what it means to have a synthesizing mind. So I finished the book in early 2020 and it was published uh, in late 2020 in English, right in the middle of an election and the pandemic. Um, what I would not have predicted at all is since then, and now we're speaking uh, shortly in the summer of, of 2022, so it's two years later. I have been obsessed with what synthesizing is. And I'm obsessed with it both because I'm really curious and I want to understand it better, but also, and we can talk about this psychology, my field hasn't really studied this is synthesizing. And I have an explanation uh, of why. So, since finishing the book, I have probably written 20 or 30 blogs, usually 1,000 to 2,000 words each, in which I examine different aspects of synthesizing. Some of them are quite predictable, some of them I would never have predicted. For example, I'm about to post a blog about George III, who was the King of England from 1760 to 1820. (laughs) Uh, Why? Because he raises interesting questions about synthesizing. So what started, here's a summary. It started out as a memoir of Howard Gardner and multiple intelligences, but it transformed into a memoir of what it means to synthesize. And there's a lot of ideas in the book. But since then, in the last two years, um, I've done lots more investigating, lots more thinking. Um, and you know, if I'm around long enough, and I have the energy, I'll write a book. It won't be called synthesizing Mind, it may be called The Synthesizing Mind, or my wife, who's cleverer at titles than I am, says it should be called The Big Picture, which I think is a kind of a clever title for somebody who's interested in synthesizing.
0: So let's start with the very beginning. So how did you get interested in studying mind?
2: I come from a German-Jewish family who were, um, lived in Nuremberg, Germany, and. Uh, they were not highly educated, but they were very accurate with what was going on. And they realized they had to leave Germany once Hitler came to power. First they went to Italy and they were gonna have a life there. And they learned Italian, but then Hitler and Mussolini formed a pact and they realized that they couldn't stay in Italy. And then my father um, devoted tremendous energy and made three trips by boat to the United States from Europe to try to find somebody who would sign an affidavit basically saying, We will not allow the gardeners, the gardeners to become a, uh, a drag on the American economy? And they and their one son, Eric, arrived in the United States on Kristallnacht, the infamous night of the shattered glass, when Nazis felt completely empowered to crash Jewish stores, Jewish homes, kill Jews maim them, throw them into concentration camps. And I grew up with the shadow of Nazism uh, in my home and also because my brother died very tragically in a a sleigh riding accident with uh, the notion that I was, so to speak, the replacement child. Um, I was a good student. I was very curious. I learned to read and write easily. I was putting out my own newspaper when I was seven years old. Now, I don't think anybody read it, but the point is I had enough energy to put out a newspaper. And none of my family, as I say, was highly educated, but I had an uncle named Fred, called Fritz, who was an intellectual, had only gone to high school, but he was an intellectual. And he was kind of a mentor to me. And when I was 15 or 16, he gave me a psychology textbook. Um, and I still remember the textbook. I'm not even sure I knew what the word psychology meant. I was pretty naive, but I looked through the textbook and I'm colorblind. In the textbook, there was an explanation of the Ishihara test, which is how you determine whether somebody is colorblind. And even though I didn't master the details, I said, my goodness, there are things about the human mind which can actually be explained. And so while, uh, Uh, I went to Harvard College, a very good college, and started out as a history major. Um, I soon realized I was more interested in the social sciences, so I studied sociology, psychology, and anthropology as an undergraduate. And then I was tremendously influenced by two psychologists, one quite well known to um, people interested in children, Eric Erickson, who had a theory of human psychosexual development he was my undergraduate advisor and then jerome bruner who was a great cognitive psychologist interested in the development of the mind a student of piaget's and a friend of the vygotsky group in russia these are two major groups that study child development so i decided after my undergraduate experience to move from history into psychology, and I've been there ever since. But this is was an important part of my biography, my autobiography. Um, I was a trained as a psychologist, which meant I learned how to do experiments, and I was a reasonably good experimenter. And I did experiment with children, how their minds develop, particularly in the arts. And I did experiments with brain-damaged patients because they were a way of studying. The relationship between different kinds of mental functions. And as I say, I was a perfectly reasonable psychologist and I did experiments and published them. But I realized there were dozens, maybe hundreds of psychologists who were at least as good as I was in designing experiments and writing them up and publishing them in psychological journals. And I realized that I had a competitive advantage. And my competitive advantage was that I was interested in and good at writing books. And so when I was a doctoral student, so I was in my early and mid twenties, I wrote three books They didn't get published right away, but I realized I was a book writer. And of course, what book writers are, are synthesizers. They take lots of information and put it together. Sometimes they write textbooks, sometimes they write more original, more creative books. And I realized that, every, that my colleagues could all do psychological experiments, but most of them weren't interested in writing books couldn't write them. And interesting about American academics, until you get to be a professor, it's held against you if you write books. Mm. Because what you should be doing is write articles for peer review and get it published in prestigious journals. And if you write a book, that kind of means that you're not able to do that. So uh, I was lucky I got some recognition for my books. And while I probably would have never ended up in a psychology department for the reason just stated, um, I was ended up in the school of education and became very interested in education. And even though my multiple intelligences theory was originally developed as a contribution to psychology, um, it ended up being of great interest to education. And probably if you ask uh, psychologists uh, what, what Gardner's work is, if they knew me, they would say, well, he's a guy who studies intelligence, lots of schools and teachers are influenced by these ideas, but they haven't had that much influence in academic psychology, because psychological academics, uh, they're not particularly book readers, they, they work in a very different kind of way. And so um, now being almost eighty, like Joe Biden, I've written many books on many different topics. And I was lucky to live in a time where I could write about many different things. And in, in the school that I teach in, the education school at Harvard, it's important that you be productive, but you don't have to write one article for another for a psychology journal. That's not what a school of education wants. And, you know, people might argue whether my influence in education was benign or malignant, but there's no question that I've had a lot of influence in education in, in many countries.
0: So oh, can you expand a bit? What is the multiple intelligences theory and how did you arrive to it?
2: Thank you. Um, as I said, I studied developmental and cognitive psychology as a, under, as a doctoral student, and I became particularly interested in the arts. And that's a long story, but I'm a, a good musician and I've always been very much involved in the arts altogether. And I realized that people who studied child development, developmental psychology, always thought that the, the end state of development was to become a scientist. And that's not surprising because the people who studied child development are scientists. Um, and so there was very, very little information about how young people can become musicians, or painters or actors or uh, dancers. Um, and in 1967, so uh, 50, five years ago, I was founding member of a group called Project Zero, started by a philosopher named Nelson Goodman, who said, you know, there's lots of lore about the arts, but there's very little systematic knowledge. So we're going to call our research project Project Zero. And as I said, I was a founding member of Project Zero. And I became very interested in artistic knowledge and artistic education. One day, because Nelson Goodman, the founder, and I were interested in the brain, we invited a famous neurologist named Norman Geschwind to come speak to us at Project Zero. He spoke to us for eight hours. (laughs) I didn't stay the whole time, but I stayed a lot of it. And I realized that by studying brain damage, I could understand the relationship between various kinds of capacities, which I could never understand if I simply studied normal people. Let's give you a simple example. What's the relationship between music and language? Some people would say music is just another kind of language. Other people would say music is totally different. It has no um, relationship to, to speaking to language. With normal people, you can't study this. But with brain damage people, you can. Because brain damage, which is done by God or by trauma, it's not something people could do on their own. You can destroy parts of the brain Where language is destroyed, but music is spared. Or conversely, another kind of brain lesion can impair music, but language is spared. And it's much more complicated than that. I spent 25 years studying that. But I realized that um, we could understand things about the mind if we compared normal children, gifted children, with brain damaged adults. And this led to my most original research, which was about children and brain damage adults. And then at Harvard, where I was then a full-time researcher, we got a very big grant and um, it was over a million dollars. And now that would be like five or 10 million dollars. This is in the Mm -hmm. 1970s. And I was given five years of support to study what we know about human cognition, about human thinking. And when I began that study, I never even thought about intelligence. I was just trying to understand what philosophers call the natural kinds of the mind. That means if you understood the mind very, very well, what are the groupings, what are the lumpings, what are the connections, and what are the disconnections that exist? And then using a complex formula, um, taking more than a year, um, I created eight different tests for various kinds of candidate cognitive abilities, and doing this um, matrix, I came to the conclusion that the human intellect is better described, here's the key phrase, is better described as seven relatively independent computers than a single all-purpose computer. Mm. So let, let me make this concrete. If we just had one computer inside our mind brain, if you were smart, in one thing, you'd be smart in everything. If you were average in one thing, you'd be average in everything. If you were stupid or dumb or a low average in one thing, you would be stupid, dumb, or average, or low average, everything. And from that simple intuition, using the formula that I mentioned, I said that the human mind, the human brain, and those things we could talk about, the relationship between the mind and the brain, is better described as having seven relatively autonomous capacities, one is not strictly dependent on the other than as being one single giant all-purpose computer. And until the very late in the development of these ideas, I didn't even use the word intelligence. But if I'd written a book called Seven Talents, you and I wouldn't, speak, wouldn't be speaking mm-hmm. to you. It's because I wrote a book called Theory of Multiple Intelligences that got everybody's attention. And And this will be, I think, of interest to listeners, When the idea is presented to normal people or to teachers or to um, parents of more than one children, they say, of course, not all kids are the same. One kid's good at music, one kid's good at sports, one kid is good at bargaining, one kid is good at doing algebra, but can't find their way out of a maze and so on. Uh, So this idea was common sense, just like Daniel Goldman's idea of emotional intelligence, which was proposed a dozen years after I proposed my ideas. Um, it's, it's common sense, but it's never been accepted by psychology. Um, But other, but other scientists find it perfectly reasonable. we could talk for a long time about why psychologists don't accept it. But let me simply say that psychologists are are wedded, they're married to the IQ test, and they don't want Mm. to drop it. And the IQ test is a test of how you will do well, how you will do in a certain kind of modern Western school let's say Paris in 1900, which is when Alfred Binet created the IQ test. And if you have an hour and you want to predict how kids are going to do in school next year, give them an IQ test. So there's a much better index, which is what their grades were, what the class ranking was this year. That's a much better predictor, but then the IQ test would be out of business. Um, but if you want to know who's going to be a good musician or who's going to be a good therapist, or who's going to be a good map maker, who's going to be a good actor, you're going to be a good salesman or even a good politician. You would never use the IQ IT test. It's worthless.
0: Hmm. So what kind of impact has the multiple intelligence theory have in perhaps not in the psychology, academic psychology world, but in the real world?
2: Well, as I say, it makes intuitive sense to anybody who knows a lot of kids. Any school teacher, any parent, any grandparent with a bunch of grandchildren will know that kids have different intellectual profiles. So it's kind of a no-brainer, so to speak. I never realized that's sort of a joke because of course it's about the brain, but it's it's a no-brainer. But I've always been very careful about not making specific educational um, recommendations. And we can talk about why I have resisted doing that. So in a sense, it was like a Rorschach test, or an block test. People read about the theory and they if they were in a school, they'd say, Oh, seven kinds of intelligence. That means we need to have seven different classes. Or we need to teach kids in seven different ways. Or we need to take all the kids who are good in one thing and teach them in one way, and all the kids who are bad in those things and teach them another way. And my philosophy was I'm not an educator primarily, certainly not a school teacher. You should do the experiments, and if they seem to be effective, uh, continue them. And if not, try something new, and about, uh, well, about 2008, we published a book called Multiple Intelligences Around the World. This is 14 years ago, and there in that book, um, scholars in, I'm trying to remember the ni- name now, I think 42 scholars in 15 different countries talked about how in those countries, multiple intelligences, ideas have been used mm. in business, in museums, um, and the workplace, in human, human what we call it, uh, human relations or, uh, or job filling. And of course in schools, that's the place it's used the most, much more for young kids, for preschool, elementary school, middle school, than for secondary schools and colleges. It's not much use in colleges and universities, though it could be, but it just, isn't used very much. And every day I get letters from all over the world of people who said, my life was transformed or my children's life was transformed because you gave me a way of understanding that I wasn't dumb. I just had a different profile of strengths than what the tests were looking for. Um, And that's of course very heartwarming because um, I'm not egotistical enough to think that, my work or my ideas are gonna be known years after I am dead. Uh, But if you think you affect people to make the the quality of their lives better, that's very uh, satisfying. And I've almost never gotten a letter which says, multiple intelligences theory has ruined my life. It's a liberating one. But as I said back in Frames of Mind, my first book, all the IQ test tells you is whether you're going to be considered smart or dumb. It doesn't tell you what to do about it. And most people who love IQ tests also are believers that genes are the major um, influence on IQ. There isn't much you can do about your genes, right? At least until 2022, you can't turn in your genes for some other genes. So the IQ test is a label without any particular uh, rescue operation. So I think it's, a, it's had a benign influence, but it's annoyed a lot of psychologists because they say, rather you know, Howard Gardner leave, IQ tests alone, let them be.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's truly groundbreaking. And uh, of course it transformed so many lives. And uh, does it also apply to people, let's say with developmental disorders where they can have um, sort of low intelligence in one realm, but high intelligence in another?
2: Correct. Uh- Perhaps the biggest influence in the United States I had nothing to do with, but there's a program called universal design and learning, which actually became federally funded. And that's a big deal for the government to get involved in education. Um, education is mostly a local matter in the United States for good and for bad. Um, and in universal design, uh, they say there are no stupid children, there are stupid curricula. And so in universal design, they take a subject like math and they show it to be taught in many different ways, what I call pluralization. And of course, that's one thing which made is made much easier with digital media, because if you're a teacher with 50 kids, you can't create 50 different lessons. But when you have computers, where you can devise different kinds of lessons which present information spatially or musically or metaphorically or narratively or uh, Interpersonally, you can teach things in lots of different ways. So universal design of learning, which I take no credit for, is something which really democratizes education. Mm. Because as long as you just use one measure, whether it's the the Basho in France or the the test in China, which everybody has to take, I forget what what it's called.
1: Uh,
2: It begins with a G or something like that, Jinjiao maybe. Um, Then you really have only one measure and the kids who are good in that particular measure get the privileges and everybody else is thrown thrown along the side. And how much better it is to have a number of different ways of looking at people and trying rather to say you're dumb because you didn't do well in the baccalaureate exam, here are your strengths, or even here's how you can do well in the baccalaureate, but we're gonna assess it in a different way. We're not just gonna give you paragraphs to analyze. So if it has, if the ideas have a long life and that will be determined long after I'm dead, it's, um, if if enterprises with decision-making capacities, get away from one instrument and look at a variety of instruments. I noticed in, in France where it used to be the people who went to the Grande Ecole and they all had to, um, do well in a certain kind of test, which is probably highly linguistic test. Um, they're now putting that aside and they're using other criteria to determine who should, um, who should who should get into these privileged academies. In the United States now, as many people know, I mean, because of the pandemic, uh, a lot of universities and colleges are no longer requiring the so-called Scholastic Aptitude tests. And I have nothing against that test per se. But I think the more we use a variety of measures to assess um, people, the healthier it is for everyone.
0: And how did you go about exploring your own mind?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, that's a good question. Um, I've looked back into my correspondence, and even 40 years ago, I always was referring to the fact that I was a synthesizer. So the word is not unfamiliar to me. And then about 25 years ago, Murray Gelman, who was a Nobel winning Nobel Prize in physics uh, scientist, very brilliant on any dimension, said in the 21st century, the most important mind will be the synthesizing mind. And I remembered that, but I didn't do anything with it. And then about um, 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Five Minds for the Future, and in that book, I described five kinds of minds. Three of them were cognitive thinking. One was disciplined, one was synthesizing, and one was creating. And that's kind of continuum. Discipline means learning history, learning math, learning music, learning geography, and so on. Synthesizing means being able to put stuff together in ways that are useful in creativity, which I was more interested in means doing something very original, you know, Leonardo, Einstein, uh, kind of thing. And then I mentioned two kinds of minds, which are more in the human realm, the respectful mind and the ethical mind. And at the time, I was doing a lot of work in ethics. And I still am if you go to my website, most of the work there is about ethics, what we call good work and the good project. Um, But I already written a book where I talked about synthesizing, but I hadn't really talked about myself particularly. And uh, your question is a good one because I don't remember exactly the occasion when I was writing my memoir and when I was writing about multiple intelligence and I said to myself, you know, Howard, this doesn't explain you very well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then probably with my editor uh, at MIT Press, uh, the idea was, you know, let's not just make that a throwaway. Let's make that what's distinctive about the book. And I think that was a good idea because, to be blunt, nobody's particularly interested in my life except my family and maybe some friends. But uh, if Murray Gellman is right that synthesizing is the most important mind in our time, then to put that on the map is is a good idea. And that's why I'm kind of obsessed with synthesizing now because. I'm trying to make some progress in understanding what's entailed. And and let me mention something which I was alluding to earlier. Um, Why is it that psychology has almost nothing to say about synthesizing? And I'm going to answer that and then ask to take a a short break. Um, The reason psychology has almost nothing to say about synthesizing is because you can't simulate synthesizing in the laboratory. We psychologists say, well, I'm interested in memory. So I'm gonna give you 20 words to remember and I'm gonna come back tomorrow and see how many you can remember. Or um, we're interested in spatial thinking, so I'm gonna give you a maze and see if you can find your way around maze. Hmm. But synthesizing requires having a lot of information and curating it and going back and forth frequently, trying to make sense of it and testing it with other people. And you can't simulate it in the lab, in, in a psychological lab. And that's why I think that uh, psychology has had very little to say about synthesizing. Uh, I'll mention later my first kind of humorous efforts to create a test for synthesizing. But I just want to take a breathing break, and I'll be back in a couple of minutes, OK?
0: So, could you tell us, how did you go about testing this synthesizing mind?
2: I realized that um, the major thing I've done as a professor, besides teaching my classes, is to advise doctoral students. And the doctoral students have to do the study or studies, and then they have to write up theses. And uh, over the years, I got to be quite good thesis advisor because one of the things I could do was to uh, help them decide how to go from doing an experiment or doing a study to writing it up. And you know, somebody would bring in an outline, I'd say, well, why is chapter four here? And when are you gonna put chapters one and three together? I realized that I was able to think in that way, which most people aren't. Um, So one answer to your question is, um, as I learned to do it well, And I introspected about it. I had some skill in helping other people do it, and I often say I'm listed as a psychology, as a psychologist or as a professor, but I'm really a writer and a teacher of writing because that's the kind of synthesizing that I do. But then um, I become interested in how synthesizing develops in children, Um, and my intuitive notion, which I touched on earlier, is we are. We're kind of flypaper for information. And young children are certainly flypaper for information. That means if a young child hears a, a jingle or a poem or a song or an advertisement, they remember it without any difficulty. Just try to play a, a board game with a child where you have to remember where something was hidden. Children are much, much better than adults at that. Um, so when you're young, you have... Uh, it's very easy to take information in. But then the question is, how is that information stored? And then how is it drawn upon? And one of the things as you get old is that the information is often stored, but it's more difficult to get access to, like finding a name. But also, it's more difficult to use it in a different kind of context. The, the, the information gets very stuck in one place. Um, and with the synthesizing mind, Can do at any age. It's got the information stored, but it can pick it up and use it for different information. It's not really stuck in one groove. It's able to move from one groove to another when the problem calls for it. Um, We all know people who are good at uh, quiz shows on radio or television where you have to get information like what's the capital of Brazil or who succeeded Herbert Hoover as president or what's the Um, the atomic weight number for uranium. Um, But that's just the information. The synthesizer can put that information together to make something that's sensible and which teaches people something. It was when Charles Darwin read Malthus about about what happens when there are too many people fighting for space uh, and food in an island and said, well, isn't that what happens with species? That was the great synthesizing idea that led to the origin of species. So there's a test in psychology called the rat test, remote association test. And it gives um, three things and you have to decide how to put them together. And it's a test of creativity, but I think it's a really lousy test um, because it's really only a test of what we call clang associates, namely three things which all evoke the word bell. So maybe like doorbell and, um, church bell and, um, bellwether. That's it. That's, that's, it's all, it's all just how the words sound. So I said, let's say we created a test and we'll call it the synthesizing test where you give children three things, um, together. And then you say, what's the connection between them? But the connection is more abstract. It's not just what words come together like maybe, uh, you know, a, a scowling face, winter, and um, let, me, let me see, um, fusion. Um, and there, the way they were connecting would be the word cold. Not a great item, but the one I could think of. And, you know, cold fusion doesn't have much to do with winter. I mean, there's nothing to do with a scowling face, but it's a more kind of abstract connection between those mm-hmm. three words. And I think for young kids, as the, a, a, an instrument like that would say, who's got stuff stored, but can activate it for other than the usual purpose. Now, all that would show, um, Galena, is whether the child has some aptitude for synthesizing. But then if you wanted to teach the child synthesizing because you thought every child should learn synthesizing, or because the child had a lot of potential for that, Then you would do more. What I did as a doctoral advisor to students, you would help them to write things um, which involve synthesis. It doesn't have to be be writing. I don't know that Gandhi was any different because of what he wrote. That he synthesized by the way he lived and the sorts of things he said to people. Um, And there are people who are excellent negotiators who don't write but who synthesize what each what each party in the negotiation wants or needs it comes up a solution that way. And if you would go to my blog, which is just called the synthesizingmind.org, I write about synthesizing by playwrights, by poets, by financiers, by historians, by philosophers. Um, I haven't written about business people, but I have written about finance people. And I'll give you an example, which will mean something to people who follow um, the, the United States economy. I discovered that Warren Buffett and George Soros, two outstanding financiers, both billionaires, were born in the same year and the same month. They were both born in August, um, 1930. So they're 91 years old, they'll be 92 soon. They were both brilliant financiers, um, which means they make very shrewd investments and made lots of money. If you've heard of Warren Buffett, or George Soros, it's because they're very good investors, but their approach is totally different. Um, hmm. It's epitomized by the title of Dan Conum's book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Warren Buffett thinks slow. He takes a long time to decide whether to invest in something, and when he invests in something, he stays in it for decades. He almost never sells anything. Um, he's become very rich that way. George Soros is exactly the opposite. He decides an instant to buy something and he may sell it the next day. He's famous for betting against the pound and making a billion dollars in one day. So Mm -hmm. they're both synthesizing, they both have a huge amount of information in their head, but they go about synthesizing very differently. Buffett takes forever and never changes his mind. Soros is just quicker than other people and changes his mind all the time. But if you were to say, Howard, well, how do we how do we become a synthesizer like George Soros or like Warren Buffett? I'd say I don't have a clue. <laughs> if I did, uh, I would own buildings, rather than apartments. Uh, but to my father's credit, he was a shrewd investor. He began to follow Warren Buffett over 50 years ago. Uh, and so he knew that Buffett had that kind of uh, intelligence. So to a synthesizing intelligence, if you will.
0: So have you met many people who are synthesizers like you?
2: Well, that's a good question because I've never, try to, um, Mm. or vice versa, but in fact, most of my friends happen to be synthesizers. So if I were just to think about 10 people whom I knew 40 years ago, no, 20 people whom I knew 40 years ago and whom I know today, it's the the ones who tend to be book writers or who tend to think about this if they're involved in finance or literature or so on, or politics, who are, synthesizers, um, they tend not to be people who are, are just um, mowing the same lawn, more deep, more deep, more deep. But also to be fair to them, I don't know people who are business people who I often call synthesizers because they have to synthesize in whom they hire and how they run the business and which initiatives to pursue and when to drop them, um, and, uh, you know, how to compete in the marketplace, and so on. And I call them meta synthesizers because it's not enough for them just to be good knowing about electronics or about finance or about computer science. They don't have to hire how to build up a company, when to sell it, uh, and so on. So as people who are listening, they wouldn't have gotten this far if they don't know about Steve Jobs at Apple or about Bill Gates at Microsoft, or about Jeff Bezos at Amazon, or about Elon Musk, wherever the hell he is, (laughs) Um, or the the two guys who started Google, Larry Page and Serge Brim, I'm surprised they came up with their names. Um, They're doing synthesizing, but it's a level of abstraction that's one higher. And so it becomes interesting when Mark Zuckerberg, who knew nothing about how to to, um, run a company, Brings in Cheryl um, Sandberg from Google because she helped Brim and Paige make Google a big company. Then for 14 years, she worked with uh, Zuckerberg at Facebook, which is now called Meta. But now he thinks he knows how to run a company, so he steps down. So she steps down. That was just in the news this week. We we're talking at the beginning of June 2022. So there are kinds of synthesizing or meta synthesizing, which um, Baffle me, but by writing about this, uh, I'm hoping to interest other people in these issues. And one person who may be know, known to some of your listeners is Walter Isaacson. He's a, a journalist who not only was a major journalist, he was the editor of Time magazine, but he also ran CNN, which is a major American and worldwide news uh, cable channel. And then he ran the Aspen Institute. Which is located in the United States, but they're Aspen Institutes from Romania and other places. Uh, and he also writes books about synthesizers. He wrote a book about Leonardo da Vinci, about Steve Jobs, about um, Jennifer Dudna, who was very important in the CRISPR gene endeavor and won the Nobel Prize, Benjamin Franklin. So he is himself a synthesizer who writes about synthesizers. So he's the kind of person who I think could probably explain what mystifies me. And you know, if you're interested in a topic, and you get other people interested in it, they take it in the way they want it to. Dan Goldman became interested in my emotional intelligence system. He wrote about it. He was a journalist, and that led to emotional intelligence, which uh, you know is really very well known and very important in the business world and so on. So the ideas have a life of their own, uh, and. Uh, um, if I can convince someone to make a, a kind of a test for synthesizing promise or to create a curriculum to help people synthesize, uh, that would be great. I would love that. And so that's why I talk about it and write about it.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And if there was a course to really develop your synthesizing mind, that would be very popular.
2: <laughs> well, maybe you'll do it, Alina. <laughs> maybe maybe you'll develop a course. You know uh, I actually had written a blog about that just this week it's going to be posted next week um, it's a it's a it's a study which is inspired by these um, these courses available on computers uh, which I'm sure many of the listeners take where you have an expert explain what he does so if you want to become let's say a theater agent you take a famous theater agent and he gives you or she gives you a bunch of lessons so you can become a theater agent this is a very popular thing now, um, and I, I don't take those courses, but I know about them. The interesting question is, is somebody who's very good at something also a very good explainer? And there's a psychological experiment that was just done, and I write about it in this forthcoming blog, which will be on my website, org, where it turns out that people who are good at something aren't necessarily being good teachers. And The reason I write about this is because I have posited, I have claimed that there's such a thing as teaching intelligence or pedagogical intelligence. And that's the capacity to teach something in ways which will work well for different kinds of students. And what got me thinking about this, Alina, is an amazing set of studies done 10 or 20 years ago, where you teach a four-year-old something, and then you ask the four-year-old, to teach it to a two-year-old or to an eight-year-old. as any normal four-year-old will teach it differently to a two-year-old than to an eight-year-old because with the eight-year-old, they share a lot of assumptions and they can sort of explain the purpose of it and they can go, go right to that goal. With a the two-year-old, they have to lay out every step and do it very slowly and carefully and make sure that what they're saying is understood. So as young as four, students already have pedagogical intelligence and everybody's listening to this knows you can take two people who are equally good violinists, and one of them is a great teacher. The other one can't teach anybody anything. Um, so uh, um, if, you, if you, I guess to go back to your question, uh, if you have somebody who's a very good synthesizer, you want to know that whether they're a good teacher, because they might be great at doing synthesizing, but lousy at teaching it. And mm. I'm not going to do the experiment myself, on myself, but if I did, <laughs> I could offer a course, um, and then we could see whether people think I did a good job or not. Right.
0: <laughs> so, where are you headed to in the future?
2: Well, three things occurred to me professionally, but you know, I'm a, a father and a grandfather, and I spend real time with my family and i uh, getting to know my grandchildren. It's easier when I can see them in person, but we spent a lot of time on FaceTime together and, uh, you know, I hope that I have a positive influence on them. Uh, very much and consistent with MI with multiple intelligence and theory, they're all very different from one another. So my relation to them is very different. Um, but uh, I think you're probably asking what's ahead for me professionally. Um, one thing is I have a wonderful group of colleagues who I've worked with for decades and I'm trying to equip them with the skills and knowledge so they can go on and do good work when I disappear. And I think they know that, there's no secret about that. Um, Second of all, I've spent 55 years, I was a founding member of this organization called Project Zero, which I mentioned it began in the area of arts education, but now does work on education broadly construed all over the world. Um, yesterday, I was in Singapore at 8 a.m. and in India at 10 a.m. <laughs> and now I'm with you. Uh, so, you know, we do a lot of work all over the world. And Project Zero has just made a new um, choice of leadership going forward and a new person who is able to be an investigator. I mean, they can apply for grants. And I feel Project Zero is in very good hands. Um, as for my own work, um, I have in mind four or five different collections of writings. Um, and if I were to die tomorrow, uh, most of them could be put together by somebody else that could be. And obviously, if I don't die tomorrow and I have no such plans, I'll work on them. But um, pretty much ready to go is the essential Howard Gardner on education and the essential Howard Gardner on mind. And these are collections of my papers on education and on cognition, the mind, with introductions and groupings and so on. Um, but um, I also have written about 500 blogs about multiple intelligences, since i published my books, and those could certainly be put together in a good kind of ways. The thing i just mentioned about teaching intelligence, um, that would be a section of the book on teaching intelligence, something I've never published on. And then um, the Good Project, which we really haven't talked about, but has been my major research endeavor for the last 25 years, um, there's certainly many articles that we put together in a book. And as I said earlier in our talk, there's not a lot of stuff written about synthesizing by me. Uh, and it could be put together either just a collection or, you know, if I'm getting five more years of, of health, it could be a real book, which, as I said, could be called these of mind, or a or the big, or the big picture, but mm-hmm. uh, you know we're allowed seventy years in the Bible, and probably uh, given demography. And I live in a well-developed country, and I'm usually healthy. Okay. Uh, well, I can go on for a while, but for, this is in in my synthesizing mind in my book. Since I was twenty years, I always lived. So this is like. 60 years ago with the thought that I'm going to live forever and that I'm going to die tomorrow. And so I've always had that in mind. And I'm sure it's not original with me. I'm sure that I read it somewhere or somebody said that. But in a soft kind of way, that's always what I'm advising younger people. Uh, Live like you're going to live forever, but live like you're going to die tomorrow. Don't put stuff that's important off, um, but have plans that will go beyond the grave.
0: Well, your life and work are truly inspiring. So could you give maybe advice to our student listeners, early career researchers?
2: Sure. Uh, They always say advice is what you pay for it. Since I'm giving it for free, you don't have to take (laughs) it at all. Uh, But um, yeah, we've studied good work for many years. Um, And without going into the definition, Good work has three components, and they're easy to, to remember in English because they all begin with the word, with the letter E. Good work is excellent in quality, it's personally engaging, and it's carried out an ethical way. So excellent means, that's the easiest, you know what you're doing. Whether you're a traffic cop, or a surgeon, or a teacher, or a parent, you know, you, you try to, learn how to do it well, as excellent as you can. Engaging means that it has meaning for you, it has purpose. You don't just do it because you have to do it, you do it because you want to do it, you look forward to going to work, you don't dread it. Now, it's obvious that some work is by its nature more pleasurable than others, especially for certain people, but much of work can be made engaging if you, know why you're doing it, if you find colleagues whom you like working with, if you can make a game out of it, and so on, if you realize that every job has got positive and negative qualities. So that's engagement. And ethics, which I, what I've been focused on, is problems come up all the time. And you need to recognize that these are problems, and not all of them have a correct solution. And ethical questions, by definition, are ones which don't lead themselves to an obvious solution i mean obviously you shouldn't poison somebody Uh, but if you've got somebody working in your staff or a colleague who's poisoned, what do you do about it poison means who's wrecking the engagement of other people um and so uh, i say to people in general uh, do the work as well as you can keep learning uh, find meaning and purpose in it and part of that is up to you everybody has stuff that's tedious but you can make it more or less tedious, and then recognize you're going to find ethical dilemmas all the time. Don't sweep under the rug. Don't assume that you're always going to do the right thing. Here we talk about a bunch of D's in English. Um, Find a dilemma. Define what the dilemma is. Um, Discuss the dilemma. Debate the dilemma. Make a decision. And then importantly, debrief. Meaning, did I do the right thing? Could I have done it differently? Could I have done it better? What should I do the next time? Um, and uh, when I talk to people at Project Zero, where, again, I've been for over half a century, I say, you know, as far as I know, we haven't had any scandals here. And that's not by accident, because we try very hard to establish an ethical um, culture um, and, The person who just became a new principal investigator, meaning they can apply for grants, that's a big deal. Um, I said, I want you to be a principal investigator, which means um, you can go out and apply for grants, but I also want you to be a principal investigator. In English, that means somebody who has real ethos, real ethics, who really tries to do the right thing. Nobody succeeds all the time, but you're not going to succeed if you don't try, discuss debate, and so on. So those are kind of maybe a bit pompous, especially given in the formula way, but those are the kinds of things um, that I would say. The other thing, of course, is find out what you're interested in, pursue it as much as you can. If there's a job, obviously you should try to get a job with it. but just because there isn't a job doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I happen to be very involved with music, I was a good pianist when I was young. I taught piano for years when I was young. I then kind of put it aside when I was having a family and so on. But now I play the piano an hour each day. And for me, it's like a religion, it's a ritual. It's very important to me. And I'm glad I didn't, uh, I didn't lose sight of that. So, you know, and I, and, you know, I'm fine with people having religion as long as they don't use it uh, in a destructive way but you shouldn't force yourself to have religion, but there are sure things that you can, should consider precious and try to keep them up. And that's another thing that I try to cultivate in, in students and children and grandchildren. You should have avocations as well as vocations. Um, but the world changes very quickly. And even though some advice goes back to Plato and Socrates and you don't need me, you can go back and read them. Uh, The world is changing very quickly. The the, the job market is changing very quickly. Most of my friends are doing now uh, what they would have thought they would be doing 60 years ago, but that's much less true now. And of course, many things we do are done better and quicker by artificial intelligence, by computers, by technology. And you need to have 360 degree vision. Um, Just because you admired somebody who did something in a certain way when you were young, doesn't mean you can do that in the same way anymore. So you have to be, you have to have your wits about you. When I teach, um, and I did, I always said to my students, there are only two things that I want you to take away from this course. And they were always very surprised to hear them. I said, the first thing is, there are no stupid questions. There are dishonest questions. I mean, there's a question where you know the answer and you're trying to trip somebody up. But they're no stupid questions, so you should take questions seriously. And then the other thing I said, which is kind of anachronistic now, is I think you should read the New York Times every day. Hmm. The reason it's anachronistic now uh, is because uh, there are many, many sources of information. Every day I look at nine different newspapers. Most of them are in English, but I also read a Singaporean newspaper. And I looked at, at Monde, which is in French, and Die Welt, which is in German. I don't study them carefully. I look at the Financial Times, which is British, but I know even if I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and my local paper, The Boston Globe, I'm gonna get a very narrow view of what's going on in the world. And so even people don't read newspapers, you shouldn't go to just one website, you shouldn't just be in one social media, you should pluralize it. And the worst thing is to be in an echo chamber, as they call it, where you're just hearing your own voices being thrown back at you. And that's very difficult for a lot of people, including me, because we're more comfortable with people who think like us, but that doesn't mean we're all right. And there are lots of things where I learned by listening to people who are very different from me.
0: Oh, love it. <laughs> so, what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your book?
2: Well, first of all, um, I published synthesizing mind in 2020. Um, and there's a website with that name, synthesizingmind.org. But this year, 2022, Wendy Fishman and I published a book called The Real World of College, The Real World of College. And that's also a web- website, the Real of org. And the reason I said it, they're both published by MIT Press, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press. So if you go to the MIT Press website, which is even easier, uh, mitpress.edu, I think. Uh, you can see both of the books. Um, and you know we, of course, like people to read the books. Uh, they've both been, I mean, synthesizing mine has been translated into Italian and Romanian. Uh, and the real world of college will doubtless be published. And I think Chinese is both. But Anyway, they're going to be published in other languages as well. That's a wonderful thing we have now. Um, and indeed, The Good Project, which I mentioned before, we are just posting, as we speak, our curriculum not only in English, but in Spanish and Chinese. So people don't have to read English. They can look at other, other languages. And the world of scholarship is so important. And recently, and I'm going to say this without trying to be invidious, um, I was invited to give a talk in Iran. Um, And I said, I couldn't come to Iran, but I said, you can post any of my videos. And I wrote a nice message, a friendly message. I said, no, our countries don't agree about everything, but Persia is a great culture and we scholars try to learn from one another. And believe it or not, I was called out by uh, lawyers. uh, And I was even, people said, maybe the FBI is involved in this. American Hmm. scholars are not allowed to communicate with people in Iran. And I thought this was absolutely outrageous, but it's a government policy. And fortunately what I did, I, I didn't give any secrets about uh, weapons or, or COVID or anything like that. But efforts to restrict uh, communication among scholars is terrible because it's the last hope for respecting truth mm-hmm. because we begin to spin everything and we don't share our knowledge with other serious people around the world, that's the death of, of, of truth and of democracy. I mean, and that's a, I'm, I'm under, under no illusion that I can solve this issue, but I certainly do everything in my power not to reinforce the, the notion that somehow, because uh, Iran hasn't signed some treaty or the United States abrogated the treaty, that I should be allowed to talk to scholars there.
0: Yeah, we'll be looking forward so that. The future generations will have more synthesizing minds that can address these uh, questions of diplomacy.
2: That's a, very, that's a very good point. I mean, one of the saddest things in the American Academy is in the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of money for what we call area studies. It simply meant a student could learn about Southeast Asia or about Eastern Europe or about Latin America and make that the center of that student's work. But the the foundations which funded that decided this was not a good investment. I had no reason why they said it. And so they began to invest instead in narrower disciplines. And so the United States gets involved, whether it's in Vietnam or in the Middle East or uh, in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And there's nobody who knows anything about these countries. And if you think that Chinese policy where Russian policy in the Putin-Shi area is any better, <laughs> I will sell you a bridge. <laughs> mm. uh, I'll sell you, sell you uh, the bridge over the, over, over the London Thames. So uh, these efforts to uh, not learn about other societies are terrible. But uh, you know, there has to be support for that. And If there isn't, uh, we just end up making the worst kinds of mistakes.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been a tremendous pleasure.